Ross. You're right, Foz. Should we talk about history? Yeah, go on then. So what are you drinking then today then, brother? Yeah, I have got a Sviani, which is sort of not the main market Czech beer, but it's like of the unpasteurized ones, the ones you can get in the supermarket. Um, How strong is it? uh, It's 11 degrees, that's like 4.5%. But being unpasteurized and being from like a small brewery, the quality varies absolutely massively, and this one is not good. (laughs) Yeah. It's well, one, way, got... one way trip to the runny toilets as well. Yeah, you know. Sometimes man, man needs a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a very, got a very standard... If there was a, if you could get a beer and it was called Standard Lager, this would be it. <laughs> it's called Carlin. <laughs> Tastes like water. But <laughs> like I said, I'm a working class British lad, you know what I mean? And I want to drink some lager. Yay! I don't know if it's still the case, but Carling used to not be suitable for vegetarians. <laughs> it's because of all the lard they use. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ross, how far can we go back in history and not really understand what's going on? Okay, so I mean, in terms of like me picking you up and dropping you in a time period, um, in terms of like the way we live, like you know. You have your house, you go out, you go do a job for hours, you come back, you go to a shop, you do whatever. In terms of this lifestyle, 19th century is your cut-off. Before that, most people lived on the land. Um, Shops, in terms of a place that's constantly open, always in the same location, like that's a 19th century thing for the most part. Um, So, yeah, if we dropped you off there, you'd be able to live, pretty much apart from like the terrible diseases, you'd be fine. Um, oh, I do love some of them terrible. <laughs> yeah. In terms of a world that you would recognise, what I'm going to say is probably the furthest back you can go, where we have a world where we have like you know, uh, organised countries with a central government, uh, recognised borders with diplomacy, with international trade. Um, this we can go back as far as the late Bronze Age. So this is like um, 1500 to 1100 BC, plus minus. That's pretty old. It's pretty old, 3,500 to 3,000 years ago. Um, so yeah, back then you had this system, like these very organised, centralised states, and you had this constant international trade and diplomacy going on. Um, so the area we're talking about, so we're talking about um, the Eastern Mediterranean. And we can kind of think of it being in an arc. So we sort of start down in the southeast corner of Iraq. We move up the like the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers along through Iraq into northern Syria. And then we kind of go west into Turkey and we keep going into uh, modern Greece. And we also come south down the coastline. So we come through Syria, through Lebanon, through Palestine and Israel, through Cyprus, and we end up in Egypt. What sort of Egypt's this we're talking? We're talking uh, like pharaohs and chariots and leopards. <laughs> leopards, maybe, not sure. Pharaohs and chariots, definitely. Um, this is New Kingdom Egypt. So this is the time of like you know, Ramses the Great and Tutankhamun and like these famous pharaohs. Um, not pyramids. Pyramids are older. They're about already a thousand years old at this point. 
But yeah, almost everything else that you like go and see as a tourist in Egypt is from this period. They got lazy then, basically. That's what you just said. <laughs> ah, we've already built a bunch of pyramids for no apparent reason. Like, let's just toss it off for the next thousand years. Yeah, no, we did, a... did some. How, How long some? was this period for, for Egypt out of interest? Uh, for Egypt, this New Kingdom period yeah. or something like five, six hundred years, maybe. It's a long time. Yeah. Um, but I think that's one of the kind of the things about when we talk about this sort of period is like, the amounts of time involved are enormous. Um, Older than me. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but, like I said, someone says very modern. We have like, um, in each of these countries, we have like a kind of very similar economic and social systems. Things aren't exactly the same between them, but um, people in one would understand another. So in terms of which kind of societies and civilizations we're talking about, so if we start down in the southeast, back in like southern Iraq, we have uh, Babylonia, and then coming by the up, rivers, by the rivers. <laughs> we talked about a good Babylon jokes. We knew it was coming up in the podcast, and that's the best thing I came up with. <laughs> boom, boom. And then coming north of Babylon into what's now northern Iraq and eastern Syria, we have, um, in the first half of our period, we have a kingdom called Mitanni, and that gets replaced by Assyria a bit later. Then west, so into like the western edge of Syria and like the kind of centre of Turkey, we have the Hittites. Um, in the south, so through modern Lebanon, uh, Israel, Palestine, and Egypt is the Egyptian New Kingdom. And in kind of the Aegean, so like the sea between Greece and Turkey, we have the Ahiawa. This, uh, the, the evidence suggests this is the Mycenaean Greeks. And on the other side, we have another group called the Azawa. Um, so yeah, we have this international system of the, all, all of these countries, they all understood the rules of the game, the rules of the system. They all understood their place in that system. Um, what we have here, like, we have these kind of a multipolar world. Like, all of the states more or less balance each other out. Some are more powerful and some are less at different times. But they balance each other out and they understand their place in the world. So what you're saying is they're not constantly waging war on each other like we are uh... nowadays. Mm, there's a bit of that, but actually, it's interesting because, like, as you know, absolutely massive like fight to the deaths, that's rare. We don't really see that, but low level skirmishing and sniping, we see that a lot. Okay. Um. And at the end of the period, like war ticks up, and we'll come to that. We'll get to the when we get to the, like the, how this comes to an end. Um. But yeah, so this is really the first time, certainly in like Europe and West Asia, that we have this sort of system of not just one or two civilizations popping up but a whole ecosystem like these states all neighboring each other and interacting um so in terms of how we know about this the era is very well sourced we have a lot of surviving text and the reason we have so much is because of the way they wrote their documents um so they wrote these things called cuneiform tablets which are like clay rectangles about the size of the palm of your hand 
and they would use copper styluses to kind of press um, marks and strokes into it. And if you've never seen cuneiform, it looks like the dragon writing from Skyrim. Ah, oh, nice. <laughs> Um, so it looks like they're like kind of these like lines and brush marks and I said copper, I'm not sure they actually were copper anyway. But we have these documents and what they would do if they wanted to preserve the document is they would fire it in a kiln so it becomes a piece of pottery. And obviously we're talking about like in a very dry, arid places. So these things, once they get buried, they survive. So we have a lot of documents. Um, the sort of things we have, we have like also, we have royal inscriptions carved on buildings. Um, you, you think of like your classic Egyptian tomb where everything on the inside and the outside is covered in writing. Um, so we have these royal messages carved into the buildings everywhere. We have legal documents and contracts, which people wanted to preserve. We have literature. We have lots of different copies of the same or similar stories. Um, and we also have lots of diplomatic correspondence, so like messages between governments, so we know they were talking to each other all the time. I remember the first time I heard that this was a thing three and a half thousand years ago, it blew my mind. I think most people are completely oblivious to the fact <laughs> that there was like full-blown civilization that long ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, like these these civilizations coming up in area where civilization and cities were already old, but this sort of like having a, an, an international environment, this was something new. But you know, it's a huge amount of time ago, and it's not a state that's always existed. Like you know, times since that, like this sort of thing's broken down, and we don't have that sort of um, constant state contact. Anyway, so all of the major powers were wealthy and centralized and powerful governments there was lots of building work lots of huge monuments being built lots of documents created and a lot of art so there's a lot of stuff to draw on speaking of sources our two main sources for this series uh the first is a book called history of the ancient near east by mark van der Meyroop, which gives kind of overview of focusing in like uh kind of the syria turkey iraq region and 1177 BC by Eric Klein, um, which, again, it, it talks about the region. Two of them sometimes disagree about interpretations, and we'll, we'll try and cover where those disagreements are. Um, so, as I say, we have a lot of historical sources, but we kind of have to be careful with those, because a lot of it is like government proclamations, we shouldn't take it at face value. You know, people are carving a message into a massive building, you you're doing it for a purpose. You're not necessarily just telling the truth. Yeah, it's what not real it? world views, is it? It's not like yeah. the, it's the. I suppose you found someone's diary, but I don't think you'd write something incriminating about yourself and then fire it so it lasts forever. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So. We find some things you wouldn't expect to find. Like, for example, you have like wet tablets stored, and then the building catches fire, and things accidentally get fired into poultry. So that does happen. Oh, okay, I'd be interesting to see if you. Uh pottery's gone wrong <laughs> yeah and so like the, the, there's some like very private letters survive like yeah, there's famously like there's like letters of complaint to merchants and stuff like that okay um but yeah for anything from a state document we always have to kind of think why has someone gone to the bother of carving this in 40 foot letters you know mm. there, there's a message being sent there's also a problem with dating so kind of we have the egyptian sources which are very good because they give um, a baseline where you can compare to 
Other states are less well documented. So we mentioned the state of Mitanni. They are not very well documented. Um, another one we have the Hittite Kingdom, which is pretty well documented, but we have problems with the the order of events. Um, they don't record how long their kings ruled for, and they have lots of kings with the same name, so it's kind of hard to work out which one we're talking about. And like, so you have like a king Tutalia who gets written as first slash second because we're not sure. Tutalia is a banging name, though, isn't it? That's a cool yeah. Name. There's, there's is that some you say? Tutalia, I think. Oh, Tutalia. There's some banging names in this. We're going to struggle. <laughs> yeah, there's that one uh, Babylonian geezer, aren't they? Like the really famous one. Never should know who we're talking about. That's him. Yeah, that's a name. Man. That's a good name. He comes a bit later, but there's there's some good ones like the Hittite names are serious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we have the system, and then it kind of it, it goes along. It's remarkably stable for the most part. The only country which doesn't make it to the end is Mitanni, which gets uh, subsumed by the Assyrians later on, but we'll come through that. Then somewhere around 1200, 1100 BC, the whole thing goes tits up. Whole system breaks down, collapse everywhere. None of these societies survive in the form they existed before. Must be aliens. Yeah, I'm betting you someone has felt... There's a show about it. There's a show called Ancient Aliens. Yeah. At the end of the series, we're gonna we'll we'll focus specifically on the collapse, why it happened, some of the theories out there, and yeah, we'll get some of the wacky ones in there. I'm gonna write my own theory and get it published. <laughs> Fuzz is theory. Uh, so, what, so yeah, do we know anything about what came earlier than this? Sir? Yes. So you have kind of you know in like the third millennium, so like the 2000s BC, you have already cities growing up and civilizations and kingdoms. Um, but they're all kind of isolated from each other. You don't have this like web of environment and they're not going through like you know, the same cycle of like uh, developing and flourishing and collapsing at the same time. What we have before, we have like, we have... Um, Babylon, we have Old Kingdom Egypt, we have the Old Hittite Kingdom, but they're all kind of isolated from each other. Um, the areas in between, kind of the central core of each civilization, is generally sparsely populated. And in the case of Babylonia, we think they destroyed the other civilizations around them, which is why they ended up kind of isolated. When we're um, talking here, like what sort of amount of people are living in these cities so we can get a picture of like what the what the world's looking like yeah um in the new king in the sorry in the in the late bronze age um we have the records from a city called ugarit which is a small to mid-sized city in in the Mediterranean coast. Small to mid-sized by their standards. By their standards. Okay. And what this means is six to eight thousand people in the city proper, and another twenty to twenty-five thousand people living as peasants in the field, supporting those six to eight thousand in the city. That's a lot of people. That's a lot. And Ugarit was not a big city; like that was a small city-state. So somewhere like Babylon or like Thebes, capital of Egypt, probably looking quite a bit bigger. Mm. So it might be looking. 30,000 people urban population um, but we're talking more about like the city building because that's something that really defines the late bronze age okay um, anyway so this kind of the time before it, it all of these civilizations kind of break down and collapse 
Um, it's a little bit unclear in some places exactly why it happens, but what we end up with is a dark age. Um, so the written sources disappear everywhere except Egypt, and even there, there are like, not as many of them around. So the 16th and 17th centuries BC, we don't have good written sources in most places. Um, during when you say the... 16th and 17th, what about 18th and 19th? Is the better sources for that time period? Yes, that's still in the end of like you know like Old Kingdom Egypt. It's, okay. it's still part of that and it's recorded. Um, what we see in that dark age, though, from the archaeology, we see most of the larger states that existed break up and disappear. Um, for example, we know about Babylon. Babylon got raided by the Hittite kingdom, and in 1595 BC, the city of Babylon itself was sacked. Uh, the dynasty was overthrown, and like the region just collapsed for a bit. That sucks, um, man. Yeah, definitely would have sucked. <laughs> um, so what we see happening, we get these like central governments break down. And one of the consequences of that is people stop being able to live in a lot of places. Because, like, you think, we're talking about desert environments. To be able to farm there, you need, like, the irrigation system with the canals and the waterways and mm. so on. And you need a government to maintain that. So when the government breaks down, doesn't have the resources to keep it going, the farmable area decreases. So you see a decrease in the area that people are living in. You see more nomadic people, people abandoning their farms and villages, going out, you know, herding the animals instead. Uh, so some of the cities disappear the areas between them become greater, they become more isolated and yeah, things kind of shut down for a bit so when we get to like our system kind of kicking off then, so 15th, 16th century BC we get a few features which make it really distinct from what came before so in the time before Egypt's a bit of an exception. Egypt always had a different sense of itself and understood itself like a kingdom. But elsewhere, you had like cities ruled by priest kings and kings who were like the representation of gods and stuff like this. And it was about the individual city and the area around it. In the late Bronze Age, this changes and people start to think of themselves as being a country. The idea of not just we have a city and farmland, but we have territory. Like, okay, this area is an empty wasteland and desert, but it's our wasteland and desert, and this is the border. Everyone's sort of staking the claim at this point, aren't they? I yes. suppose again, by this point, they all know of each other, they're learning of everyone else, and they probably think, hang on, we need to put a stick in the ground here and say, oh, this is ours, of course, they're going to do it. Yeah, exactly. So it's like the state's becoming more powerful and it's able to do things like enforce borders. And there's also like a change in the mindset. Like, you think of yourself as being a person from from you know, Babylonia rather than being from some particular city. I've always um, thought of myself as Babylonian. They <laughs> say that about you. Yeah. Um, and what you also see happen, so before you had each city had like the area of around it and that was like the economic unit, the city and the farmland. Now all of the cities within the state become integrated with each other. So you have internal trade going on between cities, you have specialisation... And you have this international trade going on that we've already mentioned. Flip side of that, the cities aren't autonomous. They're not able to feed themselves in the same way anymore. They now become dependent on that central government making things work. Um, 
the historians use the term palace state or palatial state and what this means is the idea where like you have a big palace complex and the entire economy is being directed from the palace like everybody lives in relation to central government like the average farmer isn't like farming to feed themselves as such they're like working for the palace and receiving food back from the palace um and yeah we start going to see this kind of process of unification in the the major regions so like in northern syria we know that we start off with loads of different small kingdoms and we end up with one mitanni and similarly in anatolia we end up with loads of different anatolian states becoming the hittite kingdom um it's less clear to us what's happening in like western anatolia the western edge of modern turkey and greece but we think this is going through the same kind of cycle of unification and breaking apart. Um, it only starts being mentioned in Hittite sources in the 15th century, but we can see from the archaeological sources like that the material culture, the artifacts, start becoming more similar. Um, the other area where we don't get uh, the one area where we sorry where we don't get this unification is like the Syria-Palestine area. Here you have small wealthy city states which are like you know famous for producing particular quality products, um, but they never unify, and they're never unified by someone else from outside either. So this becomes an area of competition between Egypt and Mitanni and the Hittites and so on. Um, none of the major powers are strong enough to conquer the whole thing, but each of them is strong enough to prevent either unification or any of the others trying to take over the whole thing. So they were getting on by default, basically. Yeah, I mean, they had sort of like... Um, kind of like protection racket kind of agreements. Like, you, you, you're, you're the king of such and such small city, and you, like, identify which one of the great powers is going to give, give you the best protection and least likely to come and wreck your day. Um, and you kind of sign up in this sort of, like, client relationship. Oh, okay. So, um, all of the powers talking about all of them are absolute monarchies. All of them have a king, and in in most cases, the other great powers all accept this person is the king. They understand there's one person to talk to, and you have this quite um, elaborate system of diplomacy. So I mentioned before, like everyone understood their place. And basically they kind of all imagined that they were living in a village. Um, so all of the great powers, all of the great kings, the Hittites, Mitanni, Egypt, Babylonia, they called each other brother when they wrote to each other. And they're always sending messengers backwards and forwards. Um, sometimes they were literally related to each other because they're like marrying each other's sisters. Royal marriages are really common. Um, between kingdoms, it, this is. Between kingdoms, yeah. Okay. The, the kings would have, like, multiple wives and they'd send off daughters and they'd marry. Like, if they made a treaty or made an agreement, normally they had a marriage to kind of confirm it. Um, so, yeah, they, these top-level kings called each other brother in letter, always. All of the kingdoms spoke to each other in the language of Babylon, which is called Akkadian. That's interesting. What was that? Um, the Akkadian language in Babylon was kind of like the cultural centre. So, like, it was kind of the centre for, like, literature, culture, and um, religiously important, and kind of everyone accepts... It was a bit like um, 
you know how French is today? It has that cultural something about it. Mm. So everyone kind of agreed Babylonian culture was kind of the ideal culture. Egypt, was it because it was the so earliest as well? If you go uh, yes. way, way back, that yeah. was like right at the base of that river. That's sort of where the first... Yeah, like it's, it's so ancient it gives it this like uh, gravitas. Yeah. The Egyptians didn't see it so much as like a superior culture. Theirs, obviously they thought their culture was important, but the others were like, oh, Babylonian culture is the thing. And even the Egyptians, the diplomacy is in... Akkadian, Babylonian language. Oh, that's interesting, okay. Oh, you wouldn't expect that. You'd think, you know, with the the glamour of Rome, like, obviously, mm. all these massive, massive statues they built, that must have hurt them. It's probably dealing in the yeah, language. Yeah, I'd yeah. imagine that might have hurt them. Cause you, I don't know, you always think of the Egyptians from any of the periods, like, you, I don't know, it feels, they will feel really regal, don't they, with all the art, and, yeah, it probably sting a bit, it's better, like, pres- yeah. it's better preserved, maybe, I don't know, but, but I mean, it's also the thing, like, the other people have to understand, like, if you're sending diplomatic correspondence, the person receiving it has to understand, mm, yeah. um, so it's kind of like, the agreement there is, everything's in Akkadian, more or less, there's a couple of exceptions, but we'll get to that, um, so yeah, they had like the accepted great powers. So in the first half of the period, that is Egypt, Babylonia, Mitanni, and the Hittites. They all understand each other to be great. Later on, Assyria gets accepted at the end of the period. And then they just start calling them brother then, do they? Yes. Okay. So, like, they really had to fight for it. I've got some examples around that. Um, there's a couple of other kings that kind of get to be called brother sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of them is the king of a, a kingdom called Alashia, which is modern Cyprus. Okay. He gets called brother, and the reason for this almost certainly is because Cyprus produces copper, and copper is essential to bronze. Bronze is the absolute key metal for, like, everything. 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 And so, like, the king... Okay, it's Cyprus, I mean, it's small, not so important, but he has the copper, so we have to play nice. I suppose as well, if Cyprus is its own kingdom, you would, you're in Ireland, you have a massive navy. It'd probably be a lot more difficult for these kingdoms that take up these huge swaths of land. I bet their navy probably isn't going to be as good, you know. If you're in mm. Ireland, like, it was like with the British Empire, isn't it? When you're in Ireland, you have a big-ass navy, because you, you've got to have one, because you're surrounded by water. Maybe that was... A little bit part of that as well. Probably made it very cool. Yeah, like a, yeah, kind of an isolation from everybody else makes it easier to accept. Like make them a little bit exotic and further away. But like in the end of the period, like um, the Hittites especially did start challenging that, and they did invade Cyprus. Oh, okay, um, and take it over. Or... They took it over, but it was a kind of very weak control. Okay. Um, and there's also another area which is like much less well understood, so Western Anatolia is called Azawa in the sources. They, again, sometimes get called brother. Um, interestingly, their diplomacy is conducted in Hittite. So the only one... Well, their client got... state of the Hittites. Yes, that okay, seems well, that to be then, why. Yeah. But there's a lot of, like, Egypt trying to gain influence, because if you think of, like, the location, you have, like, Egypt down in, like, uh, modern Israel, and obviously Egypt itself, and then in what's now modern Syria and Lebanon, you have the Hittites. And then on the western edge of the Hittites, you have this Azawa. So obviously it becomes 
for the Egyptian pharaoh is like a way of putting pressure on their Hittite mm. rivals. Um, so there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. Um, but yeah, so what we kind of get from that is like the other kingdoms, Azawa, um, Alashia, and also Ahiawa, the Mycenaean Greeks, they're sort of semi-integrated, but not to the same extent that these kind of core powers in the Middle East are. So, uh, I mentioned before that we're in the Syria-Palestine region that it didn't unify. You had these small city-states and city-kingdoms. So all of them ended up having to choose or having a side chosen for them um, of who they would accept as their overlord and they would be the vassal. And they call themselves servant when they're writing, like, you're the king of small city in modern Palestine. You're writing to the Egyptian king, you call him your... that you are his servant. You call him your father, you call him your son, like, as in the sun in the sky... Like, really, much more debasing, like, oh, the sun in the sky, oh, my father. It's, like, really a parental sort of relationship. It's very exaggerated. But the, the kind of the key thing is everyone understood their place. So even, like, these smaller kingdoms, they were happy to be completely, like, you know, groveling in letters. They understood where they belonged. I think that was partly because warfare back then... You know, just fighting, running across the desert with a bronze weapon. That's like, you know, bronze is a good. It's good for swords when you're fighting other bronze swords, but it's not exactly the best metal to be fighting with. To be fair, it's not as, you know, because we have this like you know idea of like bronze age, iron age, so on. The iron that would be around, and there was iron around, but it's like raw iron, so it's almost pure. Iron water, I think it's called, isn't it? Uh, you're the engineer, yeah. I don't know. But it's like it's not as hard as bronze. Yeah. So it's actually soft and it's not a good thing for weapons. When yeah, I actually are... know about this. So the story with that is they couldn't make it hot enough, the iron ore, to get enough of it out. So it wasn't like a pure enough form. I did a little bit of research myself into that. Cause yeah. I thought, ah, it's metals. It's, you know, it's knocking around <laughs> in my little park. I'll have a little look. And uh, yeah, so my gathering of that was that the technique what they used to get the iron out of the mm. ore state is they used to make these like mini furnaces and like these circular furnaces have like it was like wood basically and then okay. stack them up and hold all the bricks in the top so when the fire they like the whole thing on fire and the idea is that the iron would melt and drop through to the bottom but they couldn't uh, get it hot enough even with a bellows I don't think um, and it created that softer iron that you talked about yeah, I, don't, I think like at the end of the period in India, you start seeing like something more like more like a furnace where you can infuse the iron with carbon, and you're actually producing steel. Yeah, well, yeah, so, you are, then, aren't you? So, like, when we talk about like an Iron Age, really, we're not talking about Iron Age; we're talking about Steel Age. Mm. But until you could consistently make that steel, it, it bronze was better weapon, uh, better material yeah. for weapons. Um, yeah. Um, so, like I said, everyone kind of had this sort of fiction of living in the village and the the kings talked about themselves as being related interestingly Egyptian tomb art shows the different rulers of the different countries coming together and like okay. so you have a wall painting with the king of Babylonia now there's different ways you could take this maybe those kings did come and visit Egypt at some times special so you're signing a treaty marriage agreement so on maybe it's just purely imagined or 
and like Eric Klein suggests in his book, maybe they were having like Bronze Age diplomatic conferences. Maybe it's unlikely, but the potential is there. Yeah. Well, you'd expect to see some sort of writing to back that up, though, wouldn't you? Something so big as that. You'd ex- you, you said yourself, the amount of documentation from writing is phenomenal for this period. You mm. would, For me, I would expect to see, if that did happen, you'd think that'd be major news. Yeah, I mean, we yeah, we have so we have the tomb paintings, and we do have treaties and stuff, mm. but the, the, I don't think there's anything that says, like, that and on such and such year that the king came here, I don't think there's anything like that. Mm. Um, but it's certainly interesting, like, you know, even when they're decorating their tombs, they're thinking about their international relations. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one of the reasons we know so much about this is we have a cache of documents known as the Armana Letters. Um, one of the kind of the little hallmarks of this era is every so often one of the kings would go and build a whole new capital city. And that would be his central government. And then when he died, it got abandoned. You have loads of this going on. And this happened with um, the pharaoh Akhenaten in Egypt. And he, we'll talk about him more later, we'll talk about Egypt. But he made this city Akatan uh, to be his new capital. Get it out, bro. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and that was the, so he had like you know all the diplomatic correspondence come in there. And then after he died, the city was abandoned. So all of this diplomatic correspondence was just there. Hang on, after he died, the whole city was abandoned. Yeah, this happens throughout the period. Like a king sets up a new city named after himself, builds palaces and temples and everything, and then after he dies, the government moves on, goes back to the old capital, or the new king makes his own new city. Happens throughout the period. Every major state does it at least once. That's mad. That is. Like, it's like the resources available to these governments are crazy. And, like, the scale of building and monuments and stuff they were going through. Uh, huge. I guess that would be off the back of slaves, I presume. We'll come to that. <laughs> Slavery is going to be a big thing here. Um, so, anyway, so, yeah, we discovered that um, cache of documents in in 20th century. Um, something like 350 different tablets... About 50 of those are messages between great powers. The other are between uh, higher kings and the vassal. We find similar archives in the the, the small city-states in Syria and Palestine. And we find as well in the Hittite kingdom in Assyria and Babylon. Mitanni is missing because we never found the capital city of Mitanni. Which is why they're not well sourced. Um... So yeah, the letters between the great kings, then the ones being sent to the main powers, they're very kind of flowery language and very like loving declarations and things like "May all go well for your horses, may all go well for your chariots, may all go well for your warriors," and like page after page like this. It's very very um, expressive. Brand nosy. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> like to us, it's like really like on the nose. It's so like. Uh, ass kissing and like especially like the ones between vassals and overlords like it's really just cringy Um, what they're writing about they write about royal women so I mentioned before they're like marrying sisters and daughters so they're always writing backwards forward asking how their sister is doing how their daughter is doing Um, and the other big thing is gift exchange they're always sending each other valuable items backwards and forwards um I mean, it also seems a bit like on the nose as well. You send a gift to someone, you send a letter listing exactly what you've given. Um, but they, they do this, like, like I am giving you 
a fine chariot. I am giving you these fine clothes. I am giving you so on and so on. There's a letter from a Babylonian king to an Egyptian pharaoh, and it has 300 lines listing what the gifts are. Mm. What? Yeah. How big's that tablet? <laughs> That's what I want to know. That's fucking huge, that tablet, isn't it? Three lines in like big ass fucking Skyrim writing, crossing <laughs> chalk that's like hand smacked in. Yeah, so I mean it's it's detailed. I mean there is also a security kind of aspect to it. Like you're sending off your servants of all of this treasure, and you want to be sure that what arrives is what you send out, and yeah, you want the Egyptians to know this is what I've sent you. Insurance. Yeah. Um. The letters between the kings, between the great kings, are never explicitly political. There's never anything like pull your troops back or let's agree trade or anything like that. Never like this. You have to read between the lines to see the messaging. And it can be lots of stuff like, oh, maybe my brother is not aware his soldiers have approached the city of my vassal, something like that. It's very roundabout. They are incredibly petty about status. Like, it's unbelievable the wine that they whine that the gifts that they've received, like, oh, the gifts you sent me weren't good enough, they weren't nice enough, you didn't give me enough. What? Um, really? Yeah. Especially, like, about the Egyptians. The Egyptians were the major source, of, the only source of gold, right? Mm. So they complain, oh, you sent me this gold, but it didn't look nice, it looked more like silver than gold, or you should send me more gold. Gold is like dust in your kingdom, send me more. And stuff like oh, this. Oh, my word. That's crazy. Yeah. It's really petty and stuff. Um, so underhanded, like. <laughs> yes. And one of the things they did as well, they would send... Like, if you have something that you want, they would send a small gift of that to signal, I want that. So there was a letter... There was a gift where the king of Alashia in Cyprus sent a small amount of ivory to Egypt. Obviously, Egypt, elephants and hippos full yeah. of fucking ivory. As a signal, I want ivory. Oh, wow. Um... I suppose they just had that much money. It was just a bunch of spoiled brats just, like, sending each other shit, weren't it? Like, yeah, a gang to them almost. Yeah. Like, this then, weird game where they have to be, like, really nice to each other, but really they're, like, just at demanding fucking gifts off each other. Yeah. I mean, it's really a lot about status. Um, so I mentioned before about, like, calling each other brother or calling each other, like, servant and father. If someone tried to mess with that, that did not go... That did not fly. Like, there was a letter from the Assyrian king to the Egyptian king calling him brother. So Assyria claiming the status of great power. Babylonia, however, perceived that Assyria was like a servant kingdom to them. So they immediately wrote to the Egyptians, why did you accept this message? Like, wow. Yeah, they're really, really conscious of status. I mean, like, in this case, like, Babylonia probably would never even ruled over Assyria. But they perceived that the Assyrians are beneath them and people shouldn't talk to the Assyrians directly. They should talk to the Babylonians. Wow, that's unreal, that is, isn't it? Yeah. That's like childish level. Yeah. But it is you know, all about that status. you got, you got to keep your thing up. I can just imagine like the king just on his chaise long, like <laughs> being fed grapes by like, beautiful women getting palmed like cool in their big palm uh, leaves on sticks. He's like... No, no, no one can speak to me. I'm far too above this. Just yeah. like proper living it up. Yeah. What a bunch of pricks, man. <laughs> so another aspect of this is the agreements and the treaties. They, make. they definitely make treaties because we have surviving copies. And they would send multiple copies of the treaties to the, to the different parties. 
Um, but the agreement's always between two men, not between two countries. They don't think in terms of Assyria is negotiating with Egypt. They think the king is talking to the pharaoh. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So then if the king dies and you have a new king, then you have to renew all the agreements. Oh, fucking hell. Okay. Um, but, yeah. but so really, there's no idea of government, then it sounds to me like the idea of is, like you said, the palace and the king, and he just owns yes. everything. Like, there's no actual, like, government. Yeah. There is a government system, obviously. You know, because they, they had irrigation and stuff, some of these places, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So there's obviously infrastructure and stuff there for everyone, but really, it's just a man ruling over the lot, isn't it? Yes, I think that's just a really good way of putting it. Is that like they didn't think of like, oh, I am the king of Babylonia, my fellow Babylonians. It's like I am the king, and I have these things which are somewhere between me and animals. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Um, so yeah, like the rulers really saw themselves like a class above, and I think well, that's what I want to come back to. Okay. Um, so yeah, so the agreement's always between two men, but most of what we have is between the vassal kings and the overlord, and these are even more ass kissy. And one of the things they do is they're always shitting on the other vassals. So they'll be like, oh... <laughs> it just gets better and better, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> so they'll be like, oh, I'm the king of this city, and did you know that the king of that city over there is saying bad things about you, and he hasn't paid his taxes, and he's raiding my farms, and all this sort of stuff. And, like, if we take it at face value, we imagine, like, you have the vassal kingdoms constantly fighting each other underneath the overlord. In reality, probably not. They're like, someone's gone over the border and stolen a cow, maybe, but they yeah, exaggerate it. blowing it up for status to put the other ones down and be like I'm the most loyal and this guy's a dickhead and also I can't pay my taxes because I'm being attacked by this other vassal mm. so that's a way I justify not paying tax um, so in terms of how the vassal didn't work so the vassals were like forced alliances like they weren't choosing to be aligned with someone like yeah Casas Bella you know forced vassalisation I've played here you for exactly <laughs> so so yeah like yeah you had all these small city states and small kingdoms in Syria and Palestine and basically the Hittites and Mitanni and Egypt rolled in forced them to be vassals like they fought back initially but they did there wasn't a contest like the the gulf of resources was too great the way in which they exerted control the way in which they ruled part of it was government policy like how do they do things? So the Hittites, for example, uh, very hands-on, very controlling, whereas Egypt at the northern end of Syria, very hands-off. It's like, you know, you think of that, like the ability of the state to exert power over that distance in that time. Like Egypt trying to rule directly over northern Syria is just not feasible. But it's also like culture comes into it as well. Well, it's impressive how far they did manage as well. Yes. Like we said, these, vast, these are massive amounts of space between the guy in the palace who's running the show and the farmer in in modern-day Palestine, say. Yeah. That's a long distance, man, to yeah. make sure he's digging his potatoes. I don't know what they were reading. There, there's some... wasn't potatoes. <laughs> Definitely wasn't potatoes. They've all got Irish yeah. accents. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, the distances are huge. Um, and with these like kind of small city-states, this is how the great powers could kind of safely compete. Like, say to one vassal, like, oh, go and fuck up that vassal city over there. This is Egypt and the Hittites fighting each other, but they're doing it through the vassals. Okay. So you see these small competitions. Um, 
and yeah, like the Armana letters are full of this, which is in the context of a bigger war between the Hittites and the Egyptians. Um, and all what of the these, Armana letters. Uh, this this is the cache of letters that we're talking about. Oh, okay. Um, and all of the vassals had written contracts. Well, the vassals had written contracts with the great kings. We the examples we have are all from the Hittites, but they probably were the same elsewhere. And these contracts told the vassal what they were and were not allowed to do. They were not allowed to fight each other. They were not allowed to talk to the other major powers. They must have the same enemies and allies as the great king. Um, we have trade embargoes. We have, you cannot trade with this kingdom. You cannot accept their merchants. Trade at this point was massive as well. We yes. Covered that. We, the, yeah, the we're scale get of the to trade that. that was happening. Huge international in. trade. Not little market towns. This was like vast tonnage. They were ton- sending tonnage to each other. Sending tonnage, and we're looking at like networks spreading out, not just like in this area, but like sprawling out into Western Europe, into Central Asia. Huge, complicated trade web. Um, and of course, the vassals had to pay taxes and contribute soldiers for the wars. So the you know, the vassal has quite a lot of obligations, quite a lot of limitation. But in return, they have security from the other great kings, and the vassal king, if he's in trouble, can call on that great power. Okay, so I think we'll finish there for this week and we'll come back in part two to look more about these kings and the societies that they ruled over. So thank you so much for listening. Um, You can follow us on Twitter at Makers of History and we will be back in two weeks' time for part two of The Late Bronze Age.